You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark 15 uh, that Phil read, if you, if you haven't already, um, and just kind of earmark that. Before I get into the text of Mark 15, um, I, I, we have a question that, that was submitted. Now, at our church, like I, I have experienced a lot of people who have come out of churches, particularly it seems like an Appalachian West Virginia culture where they're not allowed to ask questions or they feel like they can't ask questions. We don't ever want that to be the case at our church. We want to encourage you to ask questions. Um, And so on our mobile app, which by the way, you should download, um, that'll help you stay involved with the church and know what's going on. Follow us on the socials and download the New Heights Church app um, in your app store. Just look for our logo. If you have any trouble, Jeremy Berry, uh, our staff tech person will help you. Okay. Um, That was a joke because he doesn't know. He doesn't know how to open the app. Um, but but uh, that'll keep you up to date on everything that's going on. There's, our office is full of gifts. You guys have done a great job. Just we, We've provided for, our church has provided for 50 kids this year at Christmas. Just make sure they have a good Christmas. And um, so, yeah, stay in touch with stuff like that that's going on. But on the app, you can also submit a question um, to be answered via email, on our podcast, or from the pulpit. And you can even do that anonymously if it's a question that you don't want us to know that you asked. And so we got an anonymous question from somebody that hates me. Um, Would Jesus get the vaccine? All right. And so I want to answer that question today. And um, (laughs) my short answer is I don't know. Um, So there you have it. Now, uh, Mark 15. No, I'm kidding. I want to give a a few more thoughts on it. Uh, Let me begin by putting my cards on the table. I am fully vaccinated and boosted even. So I've got three Fauci ouchies in my system non-reluctantly. Um, I've had people call me a liberal for that. I've had, I've, you know, I, I realize there are different sides of, of the debate and whatnot. So like, I just want you to know where I am. Um, just the conclusion I've come to is I am thankful for uh, medical advancements and so forth. Um, having said that, I also understand uh, the hesitancy around the vaccine, um, not having adequate amount of time for testing or, or the, the way that it's, that it's uh, pushed from the government, things like that. So those of you that come to a different conclusion than I do, I want you to hear loud and clear, I understand your reservations and concerns, okay? Um, I just come from, from a standpoint of I eat Vienna sausages all the time and I don't know what's in them either. And um, I don't even think they make them in Vienna. And so I just, I just eat them by faith. And so... Um, I, I, I compare it to, to this, like I have some dear, dear pastor brothers and friends who are Presbyterian. Um, I'm a Baptistic pastor, which means that I would never baptize your infants. Um, I want them to have an understanding of their sin and the gospel before, uh, before we partake in baptism. But having said that, when I, when I have a Presbyterian brother who loves the Bible and loves Jesus, who baptizes an infant... Um, he has Bible verses that he uses to defend that position. Now, I understand where he comes from. I know the Bible verses that he references. I just draw a different conclusion from those Bible verses. doesn't mean I hate him or disfellowship with him. And so I, I, I want you to hear this. If you are willing to block, unfriend, or break fellowship with someone because they have a different view of a vaccine, then you are over-prioritizing this issue. Yeah, amen. Okay? That's, that's what I can unequivocally say is that many people are over-prioritizing this issue. Now, is it an important issue? Absolutely. 
Is it important that we be educated on these things and converse about these things and talk about them? Absolutely, but with charity and with love and with Christian fellowship and care. The amount of people who have left this church, and not just this church, but even other churches over COVID regulations is insane. It's, it's just crazy. There's no excuse for Christians to over-prioritize issues like this. Let, let, me, let me make this clear. If you make spiritual decisions based on COVID regulations, you're not a spiritual person. You're a worldly person. You're basing your life on things in the world rather than things that are spiritual. So we should let our faith inform our decisions on things such as a vaccine. But we should not let the vaccine inform our faith. Does that make sense? I want to say it again just so you, so you know it clearly. Your faith should inform everyday mundane decisions like vaccinations, but your everyday mundane decisions should not affect your faith. It should not affect your faith in God. And so um, there was an issue similar to this in the first century. Now, there, there weren't vaccines then, um, but they did have a big issue in the apostolic church, the first century church, that, that the church kind of divided over, debated, and it was the issue of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Um, if you want to jot this down, I would encourage you, if you're curious about this topic, um, I, some of you might not care. You're just like, whatever, we'll get to the sermon, all right? If you care about this, though, jot down uh, Romans chapter 8 and first, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. Those two chapters detail this issue of meat that was sacrificed to idols. And the debate was simply this, is if an animal was used in pagan worship, so if we had a cow and we went and sacrificed it to a false god or even a demonic spirit, could we eat the steak from that cow? Or could we eat a burger uh, from a cow that was sacrificed in some kind of pagan ritual? Well, some people in the first century church said, yeah, it's just a steak. Steak is good. God is blessing us. Let's enjoy steak. Other people said, no, it was used in a, in a horrible thing that was, that was disrespectful to God. We should have no part of it. Both sides had kind of valid arguments, and, but they were dividing over the issue. If I could just summarize what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome and the church in Corinth, he says, you are over-prioritizing this issue. Make the gospel central. He says, one person eats meat that's sacrificed to idols. To them, it's just a steak. Don't judge that person. If another person, is, their conscience is violated from that, and they abstain from eating, don't tell them they have to eat. And, and Paul says, make the gospel central and allow for freedom in Christ. Um, I told one person, um, actually one of our uh, church planters asked me, um, how are you going to answer this question um, about the vaccine? And I said, well, I'm going to tell them I don't care whether they get vaccinated or not. And he says, oh, so you're taking the politically correct answer, just going down the middle. And I said, actually, I'm taking the position that's going to make everybody mad on both sides. <laughs> because we, let me, just, let me just clue you in to the world we live in. We live in a world of political extremism where if you are not all the way on one side or the other, you're seen as the enemy. And that's, a dangerous, that's a dangerous world to live in. And it is countercultural to say, I care about issues, but I care about Christ the most. It's countercultural. It's not popular, but it's where Christ calls you to be. Okay, that's my answer for the vaccine. I know um, it might not be sufficient for all of you, but um, I'll buy you lunch if you want to talk more about it. And I'm vaxxed and safe so we can have lunch together. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. Now, looking at uh, looking at this passage of scripture. Um, 
man, we've had, a, we've had a tough week at our church, and, and I know we've got some new people here, and you might not be clued into everything that was going on, but we canceled our services last week. Uh, Mike Lazinga, who's a longtime member of our church, um, who was usually on this stage playing guitar, passed away last Sunday morning during rehearsal. Um, it was incredibly difficult, uh, traumatic. We had a, a memorial service for him yesterday. Um, that I, you know, I hope that you got to see. If you, if you didn't get to see that, I would just encourage you to go back on our church's Facebook page and watch that so you can know a little bit about Mike and hear his testimony. Um, but it was, uh, it was a wild Sunday last Sunday, and we plan our sermons because we do expository preaching. We plan our sermons out usually more than a year in advance of what text we're going to cover on what day. And I, I was coming back from Ukraine and was supposed to preach this sermon that I'm going to preach this morning um, on the burial of Jesus. And we even like were on the fence of, of whether this should be a sermon in and of itself. Uh, should we just include his burial in with the text about his crucifixion or should we make it its own sermon? And, um, so church, I just want to tell you, first of all, I think, I think it's God's sovereignty that in the week that he would take Mike to heaven, that we would just as a church kind of rest in this. I think it's good for us to, to turn our attention to death. It's not pleasant for us, but it is, it is healthy for our souls to lament together, to grieve together today. Um, and, and, and so that we gave the whole band the week off, and Micah Carpenter came and helped us. So, brother, thank you so much for just serving our church and leading us in worship today. But as we turn our attention to death... I think, I think God's going to teach us some theological truths in this and apply some things deep into our souls. Um, when when uh, my grandfather passed away, my dad, I remember, desc- he described my grandfather's funeral as one of the greatest funerals he'd ever been to. And I thought that was like such, such an odd statement at the time. Um, but yesterday when we, when we celebrated Mike's life, I, I felt the same way. I thought, man, that was a great funeral. And it's almost an oxymoron. It's some, a funeral is something that no one wants to go to, no one wants to go through. Um, but ironically, it's a part of living that we who continue to live have to say goodbye to those who are no longer living but have went and departed this world. Um, but what we turn our attention to today in today's text is Jesus' funeral. And I look at like, okay, what, <clears throat> what was Mike's funeral like? There were, we had the Blues Society up here, and there were, there were instruments on this stage. I don't even know what they were, but they sounded cool. I mean, it was just like, it was this great, you know, celebration. The room was filled, it was packed. Uh, the visitation on Friday night we just went on forever. The line was out the door to, to come and pay respects. And, and so I look at that, and I'm like, man, what a great funeral. But then I look at, at the burial of Jesus, and there was no long line out the door to visit his family. Um, there, was, there was no, at least nothing that's recorded, no great musical number or eulogy that was delivered. What we see in the burial of Jesus is as little as four people gathering around <clears throat> a cave that they buried him in. And I want to I teach you two things today from this text. Number one, I want you to see why Jesus' burial matters. It might be easy for us to just kind of breeze past this story in the Gospels, but I want to show you why it matters. And secondly, I want to show you why your boldness matters and how uh, we see boldness in these four individuals that attended Jesus' funeral. And um, I want to apply that to your life today. Uh, number one, why Jesus' burial matters. 
I want you to see this. Um, I, listen, I'm, I am a world-renowned chef in the eyes of my children, and that's it. Um, we had a bunch of food left over from the funeral yesterday, and uh, Heather Cook's dish was untouched. I don't know why. I don't know if it, if it looked bad. I thought it looked great, but it was untouched. And so I was like, Heather, dibs on that. I'm going to take that home because it's my night to cook. And so I just told my children that I made it from scratch. And, and it was great. We had this baked spaghetti dish. And so they're, you know, I'll just not tell them. But um, I, I've learned the secret to good cooking with my kids. It's just do simple stuff, but add two words to the front of the dish, and it's this, dad's famous. So, like, if I make nachos, it's easy. I just put chips on a, on a tray and put cheese on it and melt the cheese. But if I call it dad's famous nachos, it's all in the presentation, then they are good nachos, and they're better than mom could ever make, right? That's just the secret I have. Um, well, I was making dad's famous ramen noodles one time, and uh, for Teva, my youngest, and he, uh, and he starts eating them, and he's like, Dad, these taste funny. He's like, he's like, I don't know if I like them. And I was like, yeah, but those are Dad's famous ramen noodles. And he's like, okay, and he keeps eating them. And then when I go back to the stove, I realize I didn't put the flavor packet in the ramen noodles. <laughs> so it's just like, like, you're poor if you're eating ramen noodles, but if you're eating ramen noodles without flavor in them, you're, like, really poor. And, um, <laughs> and, and so the, the ramen noodles... They have three ingredients. It's not that hard. It's water, noodles, and the flavor packet. And I left out the flavor packet, the, the crucial ingredient. Now, I, I want to encourage you today in the gospel that, that we cannot leave out the burial. We can't just like leave out this thing and think that it's, it's a non-essential part of the recipe of the gospel. And the reason why, um, I, I want to give you several reasons why the burial matters. But number one, um, and I think the most important, is because it is part of the gospel. The gospel is defined very clearly for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read this passage to you. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's setting this up. He's going to remind them of what the gospel is and define it. He says, what you've received and what you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Verse 3, he defines it. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Three elements to the recipe of the gospel. Gospel means good news. So here's the good news for you, Christian. It's three parts. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first part of the gospel. The second part, that he was buried. It's short. It's, it's, not, it's not the most pizzazzy type of sexy ingredient. It's not the flavor pack, so to speak, but it is included and it is necessary. And then thirdly, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the burial matters first and foremost because it is integral and it is part of the gospel. The second reason why the burial matters is because it shows that Jesus actually died. It's, it's hard to deny the crucifixion historically. But people have denied um, the, the burial and the resurrection. And this, this burial adds uh, precedence and, and um, accountability to the fact that Jesus was literally, physically, historically dead. There's a, there's a theory that some atheists and critics hold to called the swoon theory, which is just ridiculous. Um, but, but they attest that Jesus' resurrection was achieved by the fact that he never actually really died. 
He was just unconscious on the cross, and they wrapped him up and put him in a tomb, and he later kind of woke up and came to his senses and, and escaped out of the tomb. Well, it's ridiculous for several reasons. Number one, the Romans were experts at killing people. Um, in addition to that, a soldier even pierced Jesus' side and probably his heart to make sure that he was actually dead. And if all that wasn't enough, they wrapped him up basically in, in grave clothes, which was like mummifying him. And included in those grave clothes inside on his body were 75 pounds of spices, um, and he would be laid in a tomb that would be sealed with the uh, authoritative seal of the government and then guarded by military soldiers with no medical care, no light, no air. It, it's important to understand Jesus really died. And if there was any doubt or any kind of precedence to any of this swoon theory, it's, it's drifted away by the fact that he remained in the grave for three days. Theologically, it's also important that Jesus died. If Jesus didn't die, then you're not saved. Jesus had to die to drink in the full wrath from the Father, paying for your sins. He had to experience death so you can experience life. That's what substitutionary atonement is. Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in human form, what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, God came and put on flesh, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's important to understand and theologically confess that Jesus died for you. And the burial shows that and proves that. And his suffering, Jesus' suffering on the cross, reminds us and shows us that nothing that we suffer through is harder than what Jesus suffered through. Nothing that we go through is unable to be empathized by your Savior. Everything that you wrestle with and every trial that you go through, Jesus understands it at a very deep level. Maybe even deeper than you understand it. And he's with you in all of that. And his death brings you comfort because he has went literally to death to understand you and save you. The third reason why the burial matters is this. The burial allows us to peer into what happened in those three days while Jesus' body lay in a tomb. You ever, y'all ever think about that? Like what? I'm, like we know that everybody kind of went on with their lives. They were observing the Passover and stuff. But you ever think about like Jesus has always existed. He's God. What, what his soul was doing, like where he was, we know his body's there. Like, have you ever thought about what's happening? You think he's just like chilling in the tomb, like just looking at his watch, like it's almost time. But like, what was he doing? Well, the burial gives us some insight. The fact that Jesus is buried shows us that he has these three days to carry out a ministry. The Apostles' Creed alludes to this, which is a first century oral tradition, uh, a creed that the apostles would recite. And it says that they believed that he descended into hell uh, before proclaiming the resurrection. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus went to hell like we think of hell. If we talk about someone going to hell, typically we are talking about what the Bible refers to as the lake of fire, eternal wrath, suffering, and torment. That is not where Jesus went, but Jesus went to a place in Greek that was called Hades. It means the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, they called it Sheol, the place of the dead. Hades, Sheol, is where Jesus went. His spirit went there uh, at some point during those three days. And we're given insight to this from uh, a couple of places in the Bible, one of which is Psalm 68. 
It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of men captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. And so Jesus didn't go suffer in a lake of fire. He went to the place of the dead. And before Jesus's resurrection, the place of the dead had those who were enemies of God and those who were friends of God. You remember the parable Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man? And how they both went to Hades. They both went to the place of the dead. And the rich man was in a place of suffering. And he, he, he longed for a drop of water on his tongue. But Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, was the nickname for this blissful side of Hades or Sheol. And he was in a place of comfort. And this is how, um, this, is, this was like this holding place until Jesus would raise from the dead. And in that, he was victorious over the place of the dead, and there's no longer a place of the dead. And so because of Jesus' resurrection, we in the New Testament, as New Testament Christians, we don't have to go to a place of, of holding or waiting. There's, there's no concept of purgatory in the Bible because we go and be with the Lord. So Jesus didn't go and suffer in a lake of fire, but he did go to hell in the sense of Hades, Sheol. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. I want to prove this concept to you. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of, of captives. I want you to remember that phrase. He led a host of captives, and he gives gifts to men. And the parenthetical explanation says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended for far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, this is a teaching that's often overlooked. Um, it's not talked a lot about in the Bible, so um, it's often not taught about. But while Jesus' dead body lay in a borrowed tomb, I want you to imagine this. He shows up to greet and gather every saint from the Old Testament who had believed in him. Now, I want you to understand that salvation has always been by grace. So today, for you to go to heaven, you don't, have to, you don't have to have perfect church attendance. Your baptism doesn't get you to heaven. Communion that we take today doesn't get you to heaven. Your good works do not get you to heaven. You are saved by grace alone. And it's important for you to know that that same grace has been available to every human that's ever lived. Even, even before Jesus went to the cross, saints were saved by grace alone. Paul talks about this in Romans 9. He, he talks about how Abraham was saved. He was justified by faith. So Abraham had to believe in a coming promise where they looked forward to a cross that they didn't quite understand. We look back to a cross that has been revealed to us. Even Adam and Eve were given a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called Proto-Euangelion, which means first gospel, where God tells them, you will have an offspring, Eve, that will crush the head of the serpent. This promise that was given. And then, as they die in faith, friends of God, they await in Hades for the day that their redemption would be complete. You ever seen the movie Beetlejuice, that classic film? I took my daughter to see it when it was... They put it back in theaters, forgetting. Man, I forgot how many movies had the F-bomb in it, like when I was a kid. And then, and then you realize it when you're a parent and you take your kid to the theater and there's the F-word and you're like, yeah, pastor dad for the win there. But, um, but nevertheless, Beetlejuice, not necessarily recommend it pastorally, but you know, classic film. But there's a scene in Beetlejuice where they, they die 
and they're, they're dead people, and they have to take a number to talk to like customer service. It's like the IRS for the dead. And, and they, they give him a, a number like longer than the DMV. It's like 10 million something. They have to, he has to wait his turn. That's kind of what, what's being explained in the Bible of these Old Testament saints just waiting and waiting and waiting for their redemption to be complete. And I want you to imagine Jesus dies on the cross, his body's laid in the tomb, and he shows up in Sheol, the place of the dead. And Adam and Eve are there. And they get to meet like Eve, who heard this promise from God's lips. Eve gets to meet the promised seed. And he says, Eve, I've crushed the serpent. Abraham, who looked up at the stars and God told him, see, count the stars if you're able. That's how many your offspring will be. As many as the grains of sand on the seashore. And he had He had uh, Isaac, and he didn't see that fulfilled, and he gets to meet Jesus, and Jesus gets to tell him, it's fulfilled in me, Abraham, that many will be adopted into your family through me. King David, who was told of a greater king that will sit on the throne forever, gets to look into Jesus' eyes, and Jesus tells him, David, I'm the king, and I'll be on the throne forever. Isaiah and Daniel get to see the, the Messiah that they had visions of, and prophesied about. Church, listen to me clearly. That same joy that they experienced awaits all of you. One day, you'll get to look into Jesus' eyes, and you'll get to reminisce every sermon you ever heard about him, every song you ever sang to him, every prayer you've ever prayed to him. You will look into his face, and it will be reality. That same joy awaits you. Jesus went to the place of the dead to gather the elect so that we could escape the place of the dead. Psalm 16.10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In the book of Acts, Paul preaches that this Psalm, Psalm 16, explains that it's a descriptor of Jesus and the resurrection. And so for the resurrection to be real, guess what? The burial had to be real. The death had to be final. And God's sovereignty surrounded the circumstances of Jesus' body and burial to see fit that he was fulfilling prophecy and accomplishing what he would in his plan. Isaiah 66 says, um, speaking of, of a place called Gehenna, it shows what would normally happen to criminals. They would, they would throw them in this valley where they would be burned. Isaiah describes this valley called Gehenna. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. This is where victims of crucifixion would typically go, but not Jesus. God saw fit that his body would be preserved for three days in a borrowed tomb because Jesus was coming back from Sheol to use it. Jesus would raise from the dead. He would spend 40 days on earth fishing and eating meals and preaching sermons and then ascend to heaven. And God led four people to see to it that this plan was carried out. Uh, a parallel passage from what, <clears throat> what Phil read at the beginning is John 19. I want to show you some insight from this parallel passage. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been, uh, and no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Point two is why our boldness matters. I think um, one of the primary applications you can take from this is the boldness that we see from these four individuals. Christian, you are called to be a bold witness in this world, to pledge radical allegiance to Jesus above all other things. That what takes first place in your heart and in your witness is not your, is not your children, it's not your spouse, it's not your hobby, it's not your political affiliation. It is Jesus and he comes, uh, he comes after no one else. And this radical boldness leads these four people to come to Pilate, the ruling governor, and ask for Jesus' body on the exact same day that an angry mob had demanded the release of a murderer. <clears throat> Remember, Barabbas was commanded by the mob to be released. And Pilate released him, but crucified Jesus. And, and presumably, Joseph and Nicodemus and, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, stood by and watched this happen. And they, they could have well thought this same thing could happen to us if we show ourselves to be an ally or a friend of Jesus. They could maybe turn on us as well. But in boldness, they go. And they ask for his body, fulfilling prophecy. Again, from Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah prophesied they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The disciples had fled away, but these four people boldly pledge allegiance publicly. These four people are Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, who's described here as the mother of Joseph. It gets confusing because everybody was named Mary uh, back in those days. Um, but we know that Jesus' mother was, Jesus' mother Mary, she was at the, the cross, but we don't see her at the burial. And she could have been there, maybe just not mentioned, but I think what's more likely is that she presumed or made an assumption that Jesus' body would be left for the birds to eat or he would be thrown into the valley of Gehenna to be burned or left to rot. But that was not the case because Joseph has the courage to go and ask Pilate for Jesus' body. <clears throat> it tells us Joseph was a member of the council. This is a reference to um, the Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 elders plus the high priest. So Joseph was a member of like the, imagine like a patriarchal religious body that rules, but also a government body that rules like the Senate or the House of Representatives. So Joseph was in a, a, a massive position of prominence, of, of, of wealth, of authority and influence. And, and he says um, in verse 43, or it tells us of him, it says, Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member of the council. And he says, who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God, which means he was longing for the kingdom of God to be established on earth. He took courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Joseph went against his livelihood, his reputation, his tradition, maybe even his own family, definitely against his job and his salary to stand up for what he believed in. And not only this, but it, it appears that Joseph didn't understand or have any promise of the resurrection. Jesus had predicted his resurrection to his disciples, but Joseph probably knew nothing of these resurrection predictions. If he had, he would have been just like all the rest of the crowd that thought that's never going to be possible. It wasn't like he was an initial investor in this new movement of Christianity, but rather he wanted to do what's right. 
It says he was longing for the kingdom, but he did what's right by asking for his body. And I want you to ask yourself today, do you stand for Christ even when you have no promise of it going well for you? Because when Joseph went to Pilate, I think very much in his mind, he would have made the assumption, there goes my job as, as a politician and as a religious ruler. I'm going to be removed from the council of the Sanhedrin. And uh, we don't know historically, but he, honestly, he probably was. Would you be willing to give up your livelihood and your pay to pledge allegiance to Jesus? Not only Joseph shows up, but another man who's part of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, shows up as well. Nicodemus, if you, if you remember him, you know the verse John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three sixteen was spoken uh, by Jesus to a guy named Nicodemus who came to him secretly at night. You can find that account in John 3. Nicodemus comes to him secretly because he's part of the religious rulers of Israel. Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. Using a definite article, the teacher, indicates that, that Nicodemus was probably the most well-respected and, and most educated teacher of the Old Testament scriptures in the whole nation. And Nicodemus here, who had been secretly following Jesus' teaching, here comes and makes it public that he is pledging allegiance to Jesus by coming and helping Joseph with his body. Again, Mary Magdalene is in this crowd as well, who was a disciple of Jesus, not an apostle, but someone who followed Jesus in his itinerant ministry. Uh, we know of her that she was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus set her free from that. Um, released her from the bondage of those demons. Mary, the other Mary, is the mother of Joseph. Um, this man had a brother named James who was one of the apostles. And so Mary is a mother of one of the apostles. Um, and so she's probably an older lady, and she comes along to the tomb too. And these four individuals come and ask for the body of Jesus, and they're not funeral home directors. They're not experts in this. They didn't have a casket, most likely, or anything to carry him neatly on. And most likely, the Romans would have just knocked those nails out of his hands and feet and let his body crumple to the ground and left it to them to figure out what to do with it. This means that these four individuals would have had to care for and wrap up the body of Christ and carry him. This means that the, the, the body of Jesus, which was covered in flesh and blood where his flesh was ripped off of him as he was tortured and his blood was poured out, the blood that paid for your sins got all over these people as they cared for his body. You think of the boldness and the willingness of these people to do this. This great act of care for their Savior. And then they gather around as they lay him in this tomb. And I want you to just imagine what they said what great eulogy they may have had. I'd imagine Mary Magdalene probably spent the most time with him of the four. Maybe she spoke some to his compassion and care for others. Maybe, maybe Joseph led them in singing a psalm in Hebrew. Maybe Nicodemus opened up his Torah and read some of the Old Testament scriptures to offer comfort. Maybe they recited the 23rd Psalm. I don't know what was said, but... There had to have been at that tomb a feeling of despair and grief. It describes Joseph as one who was hoping and looking for the kingdom. He was placing hope that, that Jesus would overthrow Rome, that he would be the political savior 
that would establish a kingdom at that time that would usher in the kingdom of God forever. And it seemed here that all hope had been lost. But these four individuals had no idea that Sunday was coming. And I don't know what kind of suffering you've been through this past year, what kind of trials or circumstances you're in the middle of right now, but I do know statistically that December is the saddest month of our calendar. I do know that suicide rates are the highest in December. I do know that depression peaks in December. I do know that this is the most common time for us to grieve and hurt. And I want to tell you this. You don't need to be in denial about your grief and your pain and your hurting. You live in a cursed and fallen and broken world, but there is victory coming. I promise you that. They had no idea that Sunday was going to bring a glorious resurrection from the dead, but they would soon find out. And they would soon have their lives changed. Even though they may have even lost their livelihood and their salaries, their lives would be turned upside down because Jesus was going to raise from the dead. And their grief was filled with hope. Like 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us that we grieve not as others do, but that we may grieve as those who have hope. And so in our darkest times of despair, in the times where we feel like all is lost, I want to remind you that it's never lost when Jesus is on your side. There's never a hopeless moment when Christ is with you. And if you're not victorious in this life, you will be victorious in eternity. And so wherever you find yourself today, I want to tell you to cling to the work of Jesus on the cross, the work of Jesus supernaturally through his burial and victory over the place of the dead and his resurrection that we'll see in chapter 16. And wherever you find yourself today, I want to bring your attention to that. We're going to take communion together in a moment. And this is a representation of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He gives us this tradition. And so if you, th- if you don't like it or if you think it's weird, that's fine. It's not my idea. It's Jesus's. Okay? But he tells us to take bread that represents his body and eat it, therefore publicly identifying with him. Just like those four were willing to publicly say, I will take Jesus' body. You're going to take Jesus' body today in communion. And just as they got Jesus' blood on them, they were willing to do that. You're going you're to partake in Jesus' blood today represented by this juice. And so we invite you today, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, an obedient relationship, we invite you to take communion. You don't have to be a member of this church, but we do ask that you, you have taken care of repentance and baptism first. And if you have not repented and been baptized We would love to talk to you about what a relationship with Jesus looks like and help you see that biblically and help guide you through that conversation. But we have four stations for communion. No one's going to pay attention to who takes it and who doesn't. Every week we have people abstain from it. I call this our biblical altar call. And so in a moment we're going to read a confession together. And I just want you to think about your life, your relationship with Christ. If you know him, if you've repented of sin, I want you to spend time thanking him, forgiving himself on that cross, going through this to save you eternally. And then I want you to do in boldness what those four people did, what Mary and Mary and Joseph and Nicodemus did. Come and receive the body of Jesus.
We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.